Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you this evening with two very special guests, Dr. Christian and Dr. Caroline Heim. They're here to share their psychological tool for healthcare providers called Wash Your Web to help us prevent burnout. To give you a little bit of background information on them, Dr. Christian Heim is an award-winning clinical psychiatrist. He's an associate senior lecturer at the University of Queensland in the School of Medicine. He's practiced for 20 years and has heard thousands of people's stories. His writings and public lecture reference medicine and music and cover a wide range of topics. However, his primary focus right now is helping healthcare providers overcome this 21st century mental health crisis. Dr. Caroline Heim is a senior lecturer in theater at Queensland University of Technology in Australia and an international author. Before entering academia, Caroline worked as a professional actor on New York stages, winning a Drama League Award and receiving critical acclaim from the New York Times. Caroline is a certified Lifeline crisis counseling organization, counselor and facilitator. She likes singing in storms, having deep talks with Christian, and hugging her boys. So this episode is jam-packed. If you're sitting in stillness listening to it, I recommend you grab a notepad and take notes and grab your drink of choice and join us. Hello, Dr. Christian, Dr. Caroline Heim. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. We're well. It's great to be here, Jennifer. It's great to have you both. Thank you so much for taking the time. What time is it over there in Australia? It's just after nine o'clock in the morning, Jennifer. (laughs) Beautiful. Okay, very nice. This actually works well for me because it's 7 p.m. I'm still pretty alert. So it should be an engaging conversation. I really appreciate you both being here and what you're doing right now for healthcare. 
So Dr. Christian Heim, I've read up a little bit about you, and I know that you've been practicing for 20 years in psychiatry. Is that correct? Yes, in mental health, I've been there 20 years. So I've been a doctor for 20 years, and I consult psychiatrist for 13 years now. Okay, so you're also a consultant. Yes. Awesome. And then I saw that you also have a passion for music and teach it. Well, Jennifer, that was a former life. So I used to be a music lecturer at different universities. And then actually Caroline saw that I wasn't quite fulfilled in life. So she said, you know what, you should be a doctor. So I listened to that and started my life all over again. And obviously we combine a bit of it in what we do. But I'm very happy in psychiatry, actually. Oh, that's beautiful. That's awesome. And I love how you guys work together. So this tool, Wash Your Web, is this something you both co-created or is this more Dr. Christian? Well, well, the ideas are mine, but Caroline is performative. So she's part of the presentation and putting together a tool so that nurses on the ground can actually access it quite quickly and understand the concepts and train up in it really quickly and easily. Okay. I didn't realize that. So take me back a little bit to what inspired this. Where did this start? Because burnout really has been here for a long time, but now with the pandemic and everything. Yes. Jennifer has been here for a long time. And as a medical student, I was actually quite shocked when one of our senior consultants in intensive care medicine basically got up in front of us and said, I'm burnt out. I've got to stop work. And we sort of go, oh, wow, people don't make those revelations to budding doctors. So we were taken aback by that. And when you're young and energetic, you feel like you can conquer the world. But somewhere along the line, in the wonderful work that we do, you do find out that you're human too. And that if you don't take care of yourself, you're not really very good for others. And so when I started in psychiatry, I ended up subspecializing in personal trauma. Now, personal trauma for men is generally war trauma, and for women is childhood sexual trauma. And so I was hearing all these stories, and you know what? They're very confronting, right? And they come with an energy where you go, wow, what are we supposed to do with all this energy? And then I was working with, let's say, ambulance officers that would, I hate to say this, but they would scrape people off the road. Now, that's absolutely shocking, but they would take it in their stride. And I thought, well, where does all this energy go? And I suddenly realized that all this energy was actually coming to me because (laughs) I was a person that needed to absorb this and find a way forward. And of course, I had been taught techniques to help people forward. But in our training, we weren't taught techniques in how to take care of yourself because you know what? There just weren't any. Aside from make sure you do a bit of exercise, get good sleep and have enough holidays. That was about all that we were taught. And that's about all that all health professionals are taught. So firstly, I sort of thought, you know what, Christian, you're heading for burnout. You've got to do something about this if you're going to continue in this work, which I wanted to do because I passionately love my work. So I started looking at what was happening in me. I started looking at the evidence and the lack of evidence. And there are some good tools out there, let's say, based on mindfulness. Mindfulness is very important at the moment. But I was thinking, what can somebody like me or a nursing health professional or an ambulance officer or a doctor do on a day-to-day basis to stop that buildup? So I devised this tool. It's based basically on specifically using compassion instead of empathy, because once I found that out, 
that actually changed a lot of my practice. But you really need to understand what compassion is and you really need to understand what empathy is before you can preferentially use one. Then it was based on using mature defense mechanisms because most workers in healthcare actually use primitive health defense mechanisms like denial. No, I'm okay. Okay. Or displacement. Well, I'll just go to a bar and have a drink and that should sort of take care of things like this. And I could see that that wasn't healthy. So the tooling employs mature defense mechanisms. And then the other thing was as a trauma psychotherapist, I was using a lot of EMDR and I saw that there were techniques there that people could use by themselves that was actually used with children in EMDR. And so I put all of these together and how to use hope as well. So this is like a five minute tool that gets done after the shift. And that's where Caroline comes in because we had to package all of this evidence in a form that was user-friendly so that people could actually just spend these five minutes after work and sort of feel, yes, I am actually processing this trauma. Yeah, we found it really important to bring certain gestures in so that people know how to wall off empathy or to hold hope or to actually shelve those strong emotions. So we use some gestures so they're actually physically doing it and it helps with visualization and it really helps the de-stressing. The tool is actually used before and on the shift and afterwards. So Dr. Hein, did you use this tool then on yourself first at the time? Did you? Oh, definitely, yes. Okay, yes. so you started self-practicing it and it helped you, I'm assuming, obviously. <laughs> so for me, it was, okay, so I got the theory and I sort of thought, okay, yeah. how do I actually do this on a day-to-day basis? Do I just think compassion and automatically it happens? Or how do I make sure that I am actually processing those emotions? And because my work was processing strong emotions associated with trauma for people, I thought, Christian, how are you going to do this for yourself so that they don't build up? And so the method that I used was actually I would, after work, go for a walk in a park and I would use the tool just while I walked in the park. And it would take me about five or 10 minutes. And then I talked it over with Caroline so that she could put together some videos so that people could see what to do. And so you could do it in the shower. You could do it sitting on a couch. You could do it while walking in a park. Doing it while driving is not a good idea. But, um, <laughs> I was just going to ask. <laughs> because we're all looking to save time, aren't we? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, we are. I'm, I'm just giving you the common response that you'll probably, <laughs> you know, you'll probably get asked. Can you back me up a little bit to go over what the actual acronym is and what it stands for, what part starts? during the shift and what part is afterward? Okay, sure. So it's called WASHAWEB, W-A-S-H and W-E-B. So the wash happens before and during the shift. So the W is walling off empathy. Um, And then, of course, there's actions and a whole lot of discourse to go behind that and understanding of that. A is anticipating strong emotions. So knowing that there's going to be strong emotions on the shift and building a shelf in your mind to put those strong emotions. The S is on the shift. So in between seeing patients, shelving those strong emotions. So you've dealt with something really difficult and you've shelved the strong emotions. And the H is holding hope in between patients. So you've held hope. You've helped as much as you can. You've used your compassion, not your empathy, because you have walled off the empathy. And compassion is very practical. Yes. So holding hope in between patients. So you've held hope for the patient before, and now you're moving on to your next patient. 
And then after the shift is the web. That's when we hopefully do it in the shower or a walk after being on the shift. Walking through the day and recalling all the events. And the E is expressing the strong shelved emotions in a safe environment. And that is helped with the B bilateral tapping, which is part of the EMDR that Christian was talking about, while you're expressing those strong emotions. So that's it in a real nutshell. But I mean, you need to see the training videos and you can get it under your belt until it becomes very quick and you get a feel for it. But that's actually how it works. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. Right. And I actually followed it along with you on the video. So I do encourage everyone to go to your website and check out the videos. They're very nicely laid out and very practically based. And I think just a shower for me is probably the best place to do it because it's right after yeah. work. But I do want to go back to compassion and empathy because when you said to wall off empathy, I just found that pretty powerful. So I know that both are needed, right, in terms of compassion and empathy. And I know in the videos, you've mentioned that you're not saying one is more important than the other. They do work together. But compassion is right. So for me, I guess the way I see empathy is that, like, there's cognitive emotional empathy for my understanding. And trying to understand, I think, a patient's perspective for me is important, as well as their feelings. But one of the mantras I will say to myself before I go into every patient interaction is it's not about me. It's not about me because I don't want to take on the emotional pain or the emotional suffering that I'm going to soon hear about. And when you're seeing multiple people a day, back to back, like you mentioned, it can be pretty overwhelming. So that's one of the things I say to myself. And that helps me to get into that compassionate mode, right? Like I'm here to serve. I'm here to help. And it can be easy to, you know, people experience so much. And like you said, we're all human. So I find that simply saying something like, I can only imagine what you're going through. How can I help you? I'm here to help you. Just letting people know that we're here to serve first and foremost and not get lost in all of that. Yeah. So Jennifer, what you're doing is actually activating compassion in you. And so one way to look at the difference is empathy happens naturally, but the empathy circuit is involved with the amygdala Mm -hmm. so in other words empathy actually causes pain and if you move away from your nursing role and just say okay here's an accident here's somebody who's gone through something shocking before you're a nurse when you don't know what to do it's like you just experience what they experience in the raw okay and this is why people get shocked because you actually feel that pain and that's what empathy does And that's why we wall off empathy, because as you said, it's not about you. I am not here to treat myself or what I'm going through at the moment. So we wall off the pain part of the empathy through visualization and then actively choosing compassion. Now, compassion has a neural circuit that's involved with the prefrontal cortex. So in other words, there's a lot more intention involved. And as you say, I'm here to serve. I am here to serve you. In fact, when you help somebody and when you hold hope for somebody, you are being compassionate. Compassionate asks the question, what do I need to do right now? So the thing is that that allows you to be useful in that moment, but shelving the emotion to sort of say, okay, I'm being shocked here. This is a strong emotion, but I'm going to deal with this emotion in myself later. That allows you to be helpful in your job at that time. And all of that happens in the mind in just a few seconds. Right. Yeah, it must. So does that also include shelving emotions that are systemic in nature, like 
time spent documenting that's so frustrating sometimes and not enough with patient care? Is it all of those emotions, not just the direct patient care emotional interactions, I'm assuming? That we okay. <laughs> Jennifer, what you're saying is very real, all right? Because, it is. as you know, in the last 20 years in particular, nursing has gone from something that is a very patient interactive, people interactive thing to something that is filled with paperwork and documentation. And that gets very frustrating. Right. So that frustration becomes a trauma in itself, a mini trauma, okay, right? right? But it's very real emotion. So you can actually say, I'm getting really frustrated by this paperwork that I'm doing at the moment. Wait, that's an emotion I can shelve at the moment and I will deal with that after shift. Let's just get the paperwork done. And so you can actually shelve that and work on that later as well. Okay, wonderful. So tell me more about then the post-work when we come home and we take our shower and the web, basically. Okay, so theory of behind or do you want to just... Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there's that moment where you have to actually walk through the day and recall the events, but not dwelling on them. And then the important part is the expressing of the strong emotions in a safe environment. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So It does, it does. Okay, so the thing about our memories is that every time we recall a memory, we actually change it. So we know that scientifically, so our memories will actually change based on our emotions and how many times we retrieve it and then let it go again. So walking through a day means actually going through like a list of, okay, so what did I actually experience today? Now, you know that sometimes we can sit there and have our pity parties and we can go through (laughs) negative conversations in our mind and say, this was bad, that was bad. Well, that's not helpful, all right? But let's take the paperwork. Okay, so I had to do this paperwork and I felt really frustrated, all right? So then you bring that up and then you actually feel the frustration, right, while doing what we call the bilateral tapping, which I will explain in a minute. But the thing is to sort of go, okay, I became frustrated today. I was really frustrated at the documentation and the paperwork and how ridiculous my job is becoming, all right? But I see that. I acknowledge that, I express that, and while that's being done, the brain naturally will find a file that says, okay, this is in my paperwork frustration file now, and I can let it go. And so the idea is you don't get stuck with it. So Mm -hmm. it's not on your mind before you're going to sleep, and you're not bringing it to shift again tomorrow, where the usual thing is, oh boy, I'm not looking forward to that paperwork again. That's going to frustrate the hell out of me again. And so you're already in a negative mindset. But by processing it, so by expressing it, you are lifting it up, changing that memory and filing it away. That's the vague theory behind it, okay? Okay. (laughs) I won't ask you to go into too much detail. (laughs) No, 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 that's right. But I will explain the bilateral tapping because this is a bit controversial for some people. In fact, when we presented this tool at a conference, a trauma conference in San Francisco, a lot of the doctors were just taken a bit aback at, okay, this sounds a bit strange, you know. That's right, that's right. The nurses took it on board. The though. nurses <laughs> took it on board. And particularly when we presented it in Ohio, sort of yeah, it was much better year. taken mm. there because it was practical. Now, the evidence for EMDR started off as a very controversial technique that didn't seem to have a mechanism that made sense and it's got efficacy evidence behind it and we're now starting to elucidate some of the actual mechanisms behind the technique 
So in other words, it does work and we're beginning to find out how. And the idea has to do with the corpus callosum, the body of nerves that bring together the left and the right brains. Because the idea is that you stimulate both sides of your body just by a gentle tap on your shoulder or on your arms. And what does that do? Okay, that does nothing except it sends a signal that starts in your left brain, goes to your right brain, then taps the left side of your body, which is picked up by the right side of the brain. And so all of a sudden, there's this loop where the whole brain has to listen to each other. And based on the science of neuroplasticity, we know that the brain can open up new pathways. So when you coordinate the left and the right side of the brain, the idea is that you are able to file things away because the brain is able to open up and look for the right pathway. Whereas when we're traumatized and emotion gets stuck, Mm -hmm. it's like we haven't created a pathway for that. We can't process it. So let's say you would have seen something in your career where you go, oh my gosh, I have seen this for the first time. I couldn't believe somebody went through something like this. Okay. And as a psychiatrist in personal trauma, that happens to me alarmingly often. Almost every day. Right, yeah. So for me to process that, my brain has to find a neural pathway and create the opportunity to file that away as a memory rather than something that my brain does not understand and comprehend. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask you is how do you actually file it away? So that comes from the bilateral tapping technique helps to facilitate that essentially. Okay, so it's basically all neuroplasticity, which, as you know, young science, but it's creating the pathways. And we know that memories are stored in different places in the brain. So there's the visuals in one place, the auditory in another, the emotional content in another. Then the brain has to bring it all together. So it's a very complex mechanism, but it has all these neural pathways. Whereas a trauma, like the people that I work with, tend to get stuck emotionally at the age that they were when a trauma happened. So this idea of stuckness means that there is an event that the brain has not been able to process. And for some people, that means it hasn't been able to be processed for decades. Right. And so do they encounter triggers along the way in their life, in their work that keeps pulling this up, this emotion up? Yes. Okay. But it brings it up to re-traumatize people. That's what a trigger does. Yeah. Whereas when we consciously bring up a memory and work with it emotionally, it's like that memory is open so that we can ameliorate it and find a place to file it away. Now, I'm using that word file it away because the whole mechanisms of memory and how this works together with the emotions is very complex and our understanding is incomplete. This is really interesting because it kind of gives you permission to feel all of the negative stuff where we can think of those feelings is coming up as not being good and trying to ignore them. A lot of people who I've had on this podcast just felt continuing to push through, push through, push through, right? Without listening to those voices and maybe those emotions popping up. And then eventually it's like they're hit over the head with burnout. It just hits them. Right. And so I love this because it allows you to express all of it and encourages that. Well, it does, because Jennifer, what you're touching on now is the difference between suppression and repression, which Caroline explains it well on the training tool that we have. But repression is that part of us that goes, you know what, I'm just going to push that emotion down. I'm going to push through and I'll be okay. One more drink and that'll get me through. Okay. And 
the idea is that we're not dealing with that emotion and so we're pushing it down where it starts to fester with other emotions and it can come out like an explosive volcano, quite frankly. Whereas suppression, which is what we use in the tool, which is shelving an emotion, it's consciously saying, whoa, I'm really shocked at the moment. I can't believe that this has happened to somebody, but I can see that that's an emotion that's affecting me. So I'm going to deal with that later. So that's a very conscious process. It's a little bit painful because it means that you delay working on that. And when then you work on it, you actually go, whoa, I can't believe that happened. That is absolutely terrible. I am shocked. Why am I so personally shocked? Because I went through something just a little bit like that. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so by doing all of this consciously, Mm -hmm. the brain is starting to understand. And so understanding and acceptance helps file it away. So suppression is a mature way of going about it. Repression, where we push it down and deny it, problematic. And it festers and it comes out in all sorts of other ways. I've always been defining suppression, which you define as repression in just in my daily content. So thank you for enlightening me on the difference because now I'll start using that and obviously crediting you for that. But I've always referred to suppression as what you defined as repression. Not knowing that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, that makes me feel better because I'm like, oh my God, I need to like change everything now. <laughs> but, okay, well, okay, so this is but I'm learning, right? So this well, is exactly right. It's learning. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing about the training tool is it's learning and then it's practice. So in part of the training tool, Caroline goes through all these words for emotions, and we think we understand these words, but I actually needed to go to a dictionary to make sure that I understood the difference between, let's say, repression and suppression. And I went, Oh, okay, I'm not even using the right word here. So <laughs> No wonder my poor brain can't process all of this. (laughs) Right. Wow. So tell me, Caroline, so do you actually practice this on the front lines with staff? Is this something you do in training in person with staff? Okay. So I'm a lecturer, associate professor at a university. I'm actually in the performing arts. That's why I was able to bring all the gestures and the physicalization, because I know that when you actually physicalize something, it actually embody it and you learn it better. And it's experiential then because I'm used to doing that with my students and working things through. So yes, I have a crisis counseling background and I'm trained in that, but I'm now a lecturer at a university in theater. But I actually do use these techniques with my students, interestingly. So it does transfer to other disciplines. And my students, of course, went through so much during COVID. So I was able to use it then with them. I'm still using it and I was just using it yesterday in the classroom and getting them to shelve their strong emotions because they were going through a lot because we had to go into lockdown again last week and all the anxiety was brought up again and things like that. So it does transfer to different disciplines. And so, yes, I do practice it with my students and I pass it on to them. And it's an interesting tool in that it also goes across to social workers. We've got some criminal lawyers that use the tool because they're seeing horrific things and hearing horrific things, and they definitely don't have a safety net or anyone to debrief with, and it's often client to client. So, yeah, the tool is transferable across different disciplines, and that's where I pass it on to. Now, is there any use in writing as well? I know I'm a big writer, and I often self-reflect that way. Is there any space for that in this tool? Would you recommend it, not, or in addition to? Jennifer, I use it a lot with the people that I work with. It's okay. part of what we call narrative therapy. So yeah. 
people who have experienced trauma, it's good to write out the story of the trauma. And this is work that I do with a lot of people that I work with. Uh, you write out first the events, then you start adding more detail, then you start adding your emotions, and all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, all right? But every time you write, you open up another brain pathway to be able to work with it. And a lot of work in trauma has to do with getting the brain to accept, yes, this happened, right? And that's actually hard work because intellectually, we may know that something happened, but to be able to understand and accept it emotionally is another layer altogether. So I do encourage people to do that. It's not part of the tool because we wanted to keep the tool really quite short. And practical. And yeah. practical. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going yeah. to say. Yeah. So writing is part of a deeper trauma and a deeper journey, whereas this vicarious tool is for prevention. We would rather people not be traumatized in the first place. Right. So this is a preventative tool rather than a treatment tool. Wow, it's powerful. So when you talk about trauma, um, is the tool, I think it's said for vicarious trauma. Is that, am I saying right. that right? So can you define that and the difference with post-traumatic secondary traumatic stress, things like that, if there's a difference between any of it, and if it's applicable to everybody. I think you kind of answer that, Caroline, but if you could go into that a little bit. Yeah. So I suppose secondary trauma is the same as vicarious trauma. All these words, compassion, fatigue, burnout, it has to do with what trauma hasn't happened to me, but I'm helping a lot of people that are experiencing trauma. So I am seeing a lot of trauma. And this is what we're learning about empathy. Mm -hmm. We are so connected as human beings through our limbic resonance that we actually experience each other's emotions. So if you're at a car accident scene and you're seeing people suffering and you're there to help, your brain is actually suffering. That is just part of that amygdala pathway that's connected with empathy, which happens in the anterior cingulate gyrus. So that builds up. So you can get to the stage where you have had no trauma happen to you, but you have seen so much trauma. And we know through MRI imaging that the brain lights up as though you are experiencing the same pain that somebody actually experienced. So vicarious trauma, which is a problem for healthcare workers, for lawyers, for first responders, is very real and it's taking its toll on people that we need in our society at the moment. Right. And I was just going to say, do you think the pandemic has kind of just pushed us over the edge a little bit with respect to collective trauma and empathy? Because we're all wanting to connect at the same time, too. So with social distancing and everything else right now, but do you think there's almost a heightened sense of, of empathy going on as well? And then I think about healthcare providers who've committed suicide and how those rates have gone up because of the pandemic. And I wonder about all of that. If Where do you think healthcare providers are struggling right now? Is it too much empathy? We are all human beings, yeah. and we are all in this together, right? And so that line between who are the helpers and the people needing help is being blurred, okay? Not only are nurses treating people that were old friends or school teachers or things like that, they're needing treatment themselves. And there is this idea that for some reason healthcare workers are bulletproof and invincible and uh, the research is showing that they're human beings just like anybody else okay and yeah. so it gets to the stage that please we need to be taken care of as well and our society now is very compartmentalized okay everybody does their job 
and we hear about them, but we don't see it as much. And so there is a society out there that is demanding a very good healthcare system. And you know what? They have a very good healthcare system, but we can't do this forever. We need to take care of ourselves and we need the society to be on board with us. You know, could you take care of us, please, so that we can take care of you? So in other words, everybody has to do their bit in the social distancing and the mask wearing and all the stuff, the isolations that annoying all of us because we naturally like to connect physically in the flesh as human beings and we're just finding out how important hugs, touches, eye contact, face-to-face conversations actually are. We're finding out how important we are to each other. And I'd just like to add to that too, just as evidence that the need for something to de-stress or some sort of a tool. When we presented at a conference in 2019, the, the one in San Francisco, and we had a certain amount of traffic to the tool. But last November, when we presented in Cleveland, Ohio, there was a, about 1,400, I'd say, first responders because there were firemen, there were paramedics, majority nurses and junior doctors and things. The next day, 1,000 people went and looked at that tool. So <laughs> online, yeah. So there's such a need for it and something that they could do individually too. It wasn't a group sort of a training. It's something that it needed to be individualized. It needed to be something, okay, I don't have the time. I only have five minutes, but I really do need to take care of myself. Let's go on and look at the tool. And there's been steady traffic ever since because people, you know, once you've learned it, you've learned it, but you kind of need to refresh and things like that. And you forget, the brain forgets that it's useful. And then you go into the burnout cycle again and you need to come back. And so I think that that's really good evidence of the great need out there because of COVID. And this is one, I think it's Cleveland, Northern Ohio traumas system and they've got one of the biggest medical systems in the united states so they were just really getting burnt out some of the comments that we had yeah kind of empowers us to take control of our own health again right and like you said dr heim too the system wasn't really designed the healthcare system to take care of its providers that's one thing i've realized over the last while that i've been practicing the healthcare system just isn't designed with us in mind and I do struggle with the term healthcare hero. I've struggled with this since it started because I really felt like it held us to a standard that doesn't exist, right? Like a fictional standard in a way that this pandemic is on us to save everybody when really, like you mentioned, it's a community effort. It's and, a community effort, yeah. 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 And Jennifer, you, you mentioned the suicides of healthcare workers, okay? And society can have an ideal in mind like a healthcare hero because it's not an actual person. But if society were to follow an actual person to see what they go through day by day and just anybody, anybody, right? They're all working really hard and they would then know that, no, these are ordinary people that need support, okay, because it can't keep going on like this. Right. It's just not sustainable. You're right. So I thank you both so much for joining me today and sharing this incredible tool. I know I will be sharing it with listeners and followers and my networks. Is there anything you want to share further? Yes, Jennifer. Yes. (laughs) Jennifer, we have a favor to ask. Oh, okay. (laughs) You're putting me on the spot. No, 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 no. No, Jennifer, we developed this tool just in the months before COVID, and it's been rolled out during COVID. And we have 
a paper on the evidence behind the rationale. What we don't have is a paper that empirically tests the tool itself. And of course, we've gone to nurses and hospitals, and you know what, since COVID started, they haven't had time to do a trial, okay, because it's just surprised. added work. Yeah. No, I'm not surprised either. <laughs> However, if there is somebody listening that says, yes, I have a pool of about 40 or 60 nursing staff that would be willing to take part in a trial that would take about 10 minutes of dedicated work a day for three weeks. Not much. We would, <laughs> well, for people who are yeah, stretched I know. to the limit. It's so you know, true. It's true. We would love that, yeah. We would love it. We have ethical approval for a clinical trial in Australia and North America. So, yes, if there is anyone out there that is happy to dedicate and obviously Thank thank you for bringing that up because I was going to ask you if the clinical trial has taken place because I knew that was coming after it's been published. So you're working on that. So could that be any, like, does it have to be an organization specifically or could it be anybody who I know in the healthcare space that's willing to take part in this? The thing is that for any trial, we need numbers. So it would be nice to have a pool of about 60 people who could basically, it's all designed and ready to go, but we just need to actually do it. And it does mean at least a 10-minute commitment from people every day for about three weeks. Yeah. And then we could have some empirical evidence on this. Yeah. That's great. Okay. I will definitely bring that forward. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Do you have any final words for us, like of inspiration right now to get us through this next wave that we're all going through? Jennifer, it has to do with holding hope, all right? Healthcare workers are doing an amazing job. It's not always as appreciated as much as it does, but I would say to people that you are human too. So take care of yourself as a human being. One thing that I was taught as a psychiatrist is try not to work harder than the people that you're taking care of. So in other words, you need to make sure that you have some downtime for yourself, that you're doing things that are good for you. Obviously, there's the exercise and not too much alcohol and all of that sort of stuff. But it's actually holding hope that we are becoming more human through all of this. We are appreciating each other more. We are hugging each other just a little bit more tightly. We are making phone calls to those family members that we haven't spoken to for a while because all of a sudden they're just more important and old friends and even neighbours. All of that is the hope of humanity to see that we are going to get through this together. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for helping us and taking care of us and recognizing that we are human too. Where can people follow you? Let us know. Okay, so we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, and we have a YouTube channel live stream that we do each week where we talk about different issues that are happening in society at the moment. Go onto our our website and you'll find the links to all of those things. And Jennifer, all of that takes a lot of time, but I'd encourage people to get onto Caroline's Instagram page because she takes these wonderful photographs and just takes a little snippet of something that I've written and puts them together so that people can have a little bit more hope for that yeah. particular day. Yes, yeah, a bit of a daily dose, yeah. Beautiful. I'm definitely following. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> doing that right after this. Instagram's my favorite tool for just those quick snippets of hope, actually. And look, we want to thank you because you're doing yeah. it, providing us such an amazing service because there's so much need out there. And podcasts great because you can listen to it while you're 
doing your exercise or whatever. So thank you for that because it's so much need, Jennifer, and you're really fulfilling that. So it's really great. And also to all your listeners, Jennifer, just a big thank you because Mm, all of you are helping humanity and we've all got our place to help each other. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. I hope we stay connected. That'll be lovely, Jennifer. Take care. Okay. Take care. See you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.